You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. My name is Rod, and joining me in the studio this morning is our pal Nisa Skelton from the Camera Times. Good morning, Nisa. Good morning. Thank you for having me today on this horrible, dreary and wet morning. Uh, it's good for the grass and good for our dams and good for ducks. Well, I hope everyone's snuggled up inside, maybe in a doona or in front of a nice warm fire. Well, I'm, I'm going to go and watch a movie after this. Uh, I'm going to go and watch this one about food. It's called... Uh, oh, Food Inc. Food Inc. I've been hearing all about that, actually. It's meant to be amazing and meant to leave you feeling really guilty and... Frightened. I'm not feeling guilty at all yet. And, uh, well, dear listener, do you know this feeling, you know, I'm feeling blue? Uh, because, you know, we have this wonderful guest in the studio, but I can't remember what it is that she's going to talk about. And I think she said it was this next... Um, I can't read it. I'm not sure. And she did say, but I wasn't listening. But I do know her name is Dr Kristen Pammer, neuroscientist from the ANU, and she's joining us here on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Kristen. Good morning. Now, can we just unpack what I just said there? <clears throat> I said I'm feeling blue. Right. Can you guess why I said that? Because one of the things you're interested in is the research that I'm doing on synesthesia. Yep, exactly right. And then I had trouble with my word. What was that? Well, that could come about as if you're, if you're dyslexic. Something like that might happen. Yeah. And I'm really going to delve into these topics a bit more of course and the other one I said was I wasn't listening. Oh right that because you're not paying attention. That's right and right. partly you know it's being a man and you know the female voice and you could have been saying you know did you take the bin out or something like that. Uh, we're going to delve into all these things uh, in a lot more detail during the show and first what have we got from this day in science Nisa? Well I've got a um, birth this day in science, which happened in 1934, it was Alexei Akpovic Leonov, a Soviet cosmonaut who was the first man to climb out of a spacecraft in space. On the 18th of March 1965, on the second orbit, Leonov left the spacecraft through the airlock while still tethered to the vessel, thankfully, I'm sure. <laughs> he took motion pictures and practiced moving outside the spacecraft for 10 minutes. And I thought it was a nice one to talk about because um, we've just had that news that our Tidbinbilla space site um, and also the Honeysuckle Creek space site have been declared historic sites by the American Society of Aeronautics. Wow, well yeah, done. Yeah, so it's nice. And it's funny, a lot of people don't even know the Tidbinbilla communication complex. A lot of Canberrans aren't even aware of what we have in our own backyard. But it's, it's amazing what we've got out there. It's a wonderful place to visit. Yes. And they've got... A a model of the uh, Martian probes and the spirit and the opportunity. Uh, one of them is now stuck in the sand up there on Mars. But what was the name of this, this astronaut who did this first spacewalk? It was... <laughs> you're going to make me pronounce this again. Oh, Let me just say it fast and confidently. Alexei Akapovic Leonov. <laughs> that's not one you want dyslexia for, is it? No. no we have another birth uh, today, which happened in 1859. Uh, it was Pierre Jeannette, who was a French psychopathologist and neurologist who was influential in bringing about France and the United States States, a connection between academic psychology and the clinical treatment of mental illness. 
And he actually stressed psychological factors in hypnosis and contrib- which contributed to the modern concept of mental and emotional disorders involving anxiety, phobias and other abnormal behaviour. And that was Pierre Jeanette. Okay, here's one from this day in science, and these ones have nothing to do with our theme today. We do try to choose the ones, by the way, that relate in some way to the topic of the day, but I also like this one just because they're quirky, and this one is an automatic fishing device. So in 1899, black American inventor George Cook of Louisville, Kentucky, received a US patent for an automatic fishing device. And the device featured a trip lever activated by tension on the fishing line, so you could presumably have one hand free for the beer and the other hand for the sausage. Uh, and it was uh, would release a spring-loaded cartridge that slid back on short rails within the frame of the device immediately and also ring an alarm gong uh, through a spring-actuated striker. And the carriage contained another spring-driven reel which then taped up, took up the line. I'm not, I'm not sure whether that means it reeled the poor hapless fish into the shore at the same time. Doesn't that defeat the purpose of fishing? Yeah, he mustn't have been uh, he mustn't have been very passionate about fishing to do that. But the purpose of fishing is to sit there and admire the world and the you know the the trickling waters and the blue sky and the colours of the clouds and talk to your friends and whilst having a purpose of some sort. Yeah. It's just an excuse. It's like, you know, we have friends around to socialise because we're having a party of some sort. Yeah. And the other one is uh, now, of course, uh, Superman fans will like this one. Krypton. Nothing to do with kryptonite. Well, actually, I'm not sure what the relationship to kryptonite is. In 1898, William, uh, sorry, Morris Travers, an English chemist, while working on, with William Ramsey in London, discovered the element krypton. And the name derives from the Greek word for hidden. There you go. And one more. Uh, and the ice cream freezer. <laughs> We're into the profound moments in science here. 1848, an early US patent for an ice cream freezer was issued to William Young of Baltimore. And the first freezer patent was issued to Nancy Johnson on the 9th of September, 1834. It goes back a long way, doesn't it? 1834. Uh, and it had a revolving shaft inside... With, with two curved wings to move the ice cream into the freezer, or oh, in the freezer, sorry. And Young's idea made the freezer itself turn rapidly with an ice tub as well as the cream inside. Oh, so this is an ice cream maker. Yeah, it sounds ah. like it. Oh, yum. <laughs> I don't see anything trivial about that. No, <laughs> that's very important. <laughs> so would this have been, if this was an ice cream maker, would this have been the first ice cream that we would have seen back then? That's a really good question. I don't know. Well, maybe this story is more important than we actually <laughs> realise. We, 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 well, we talked about Food Inc. We should do a fuzzy show on food sometime and all the weird science behind food, like the sugars and the fats and some of the technology you need to make food and to produce food and to bring it to our table. Where does We had uh, Richard Stazaker in there, didn't we? Yeah, where our food comes that, from. That was about growing food. And you had a really interesting question for me the other day, which I haven't answered for you yet. Why is it that we crave sweet foods after having a savoury meal? Yeah, I don't so know. You but do, get do, answers do, to do those you, kinds of questions. Do you do you find that? Do you after you've eaten a meal, do you feel, Kristen, do you want to you leave a piece of chocolate or something like that? Oh, I don't need the excuse, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> <laughs> I can eat chocolate any time. What I do find is that I actually I can't drink, eat chocolate without water. I need to drink water oh. with chocolate. And my daughter's the same, funnily enough. 
But uh, why is that? I don't know. I don't know. It's something about the sweetness that's specific no, to does chocolate. Does it melt though. properly in your mouth? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you, do you know of any brain imaging studies that show what goes on in the pleasure centres of the brain as we eat? And we, are we triggering parts of the brain that says uh, that feels really good? Uh, it's not a specific area that I'm that I do research in, so it's sort of I'm just a bit peripherally. But yeah, certainly it is the case that when we when we um, engage in that sort of thing, so eating nice stuff that we feels nice. See, that's an interesting idea because I like chocolate. And eating chocolate's a pleasurable thing for me. But, Miss, if you oh, don't like chocolate... Yeah, I like chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> that's not necessarily a pleasurable thing. And it could be activating a whole stack of other areas in the brain. Yeah. So we often make assumptions that's about... That's very subjective, then. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So whenever we're talking about things like... Uh, uh, or reinforcement, for, in, for example, or what's pleasurable, it can be quite idiosyncratic, quite unique to the person. Well, that really ties in nicely with a conversation we're having prior to the show, which is a story that I brought in about ball lightning. And these researchers, <laughs> it, there is a tie in here, believe it or not, these researchers here in uh, Innsbruck, in Austria, uh, say that they think that transcranial magnetic stimulation might be involved with us sensing ball lightning. So before I go on with the story, Kristen, can you explain what transcranial TMS? Stimu- TMS. <laughs> That's a much better way to pronounce it. Uh, I, again, I don't personally do TMS research. I do different types of, t- types of brain research, and I've never been a, t- a subject for a TMS study. Uh, but effectively what happens is that you get a very small m- magnetic signal that... S- impairs the functioning of neurons in a very specific part of the brain for a very short period of time. Uh, is it suppression rather than stimulation of part of the brain? It depends on how you set As far as I understand it, it depends on how you set the TMS okay. pulse okay. or pulses. Well, this, in, according to these two researchers, they think that some people's experience of ball lightning might be that there's a very large bolt, a big zack of electricity right close to their brain, which in, induces the magnetic field. And then that gives them the sensation that they've seen this ball lightning. Now, this other researcher who is uh, an expert, and perhaps we can get him on to fuzzy logic here because he's from the ANU, Emeritus Professor Robert Crompton, a visiting fellow with the Research School of Physics and Engineering, and he says um, that this idea doesn't explain all cases because there are physical signs of ball lightning. And there's an example that he talks about where there was a man who was standing next to his garage door when the lightning struck nearby... And shortly afterwards, he saw an orange ball rotating, slowly floating towards him. And it entered his metal garage through the open door, bounced twice on a board of wood before disappearing with a loud bang, like a rifle shot. And Compton says the object left marks on the board, which were later analysed by the Australian Federal Police Forensics Lab and found to be titanium oxide. And that uh, of the sort that you find in paint you know titanium oxide occurs in paints but there wasn't any paint splash or anything in the garage so there's actually some proof that the, the, the phenomenon was real see one of the things that I think is interesting about the idea that maybe it's some sort of induced brain signal of some sort as a result of being near lightning that's the that's the idea yes that uh so, so the idea, presumably, is lightning happens near you. It generates some sort of um, extraneous signal in the, presumably the visual cortex because people are seeing uh, a, um, a visual phenomenon, the ball lightning. 
why then would everybody interpret it to be ball lightning? Why would we not... It's not a well-known experience, seeing ball lightning. I mean, if I saw a, flat, a white flash, I wouldn't necessarily do, oh, look, that's ball lightning. <laughs> yeah, you might think There's, it would be more like maybe it's some kind of god figure coming well, in, like yeah, a glowing ball coming right, towards exactly. you. There are a lot of ways that you could, have, you could interpret what is effectively just a visual flash of some sort or a prolonged visual flash. Why would everybody interpret it ah, as being so ball lightning? So I couldn't perhaps instead get a sensation that there's a plate of chocolate in front of me. Bright one? Yes. Yeah. But um, also, people who like to listen to science radio, which I presume are people tuned in now to Fuzzy Logic, uh, might also listen to a very good program on ABC Radio National called All in the Mind. And yesterday they talked about a thing called the... I think they called it the God Machine. And they stimulated part of the brain which gives people like a religious experience, or they interpreted as a religious experience and the writer, the science writer who was being interviewed said that she was very sceptical and she's an atheist and they put her inside this machine it's some kind of skull cap thing uh, I think, that's as I understood it, and she had this sensation that there was like a goblin or a golem in the room with her yeah. oh no so all the atheists have kind of these horrible experiences with with uh, kind of monsters like goblins whereas you were saying before when we were talking about this that Muslim people will have um, or Muslim people will have experiences that fit in with their own ideals their own beliefs whereas so oh, poor atheists yeah. <laughs> like, well, see, that, that's but they the must believe in monsters well it's obviously it's obviously to stimulate something some sort of uh, belief structure type phenomenon and that's the more interesting issue I think mm. there is it so my understanding of what happens is that there's a an activation that is consistent with your internal beliefs so if you're Muslim for example you you will experience some, something that is consistent with Islam and if you're Christian you'll experience something that's consistent with Christianity what's more interesting for me is the idea that we need to believe in something what is it that uh, about each of us that, it, that is actually generating the need to believe? And if there would be people that undergo this and nothing happens, and what makes them different to other people? Yeah, well, indeed, yeah. Or how how we reinterpret it? So, see, um, golems, for example, or whatever it might have been. I <laughs> Mermaids. I wonder if that happens then in cases of near death experiences. Is that what they're trying to recreate there with this skull cap? A device um, is that maybe what happens when someone's having a near-death experience and then talks about oh there was a glowing light or yeah. there was some religious experience again that those sorts of experiences tend to be um, culturally specific as well okay oh that's I don't know if I'm a little bit sad or a bit <laughs> optimistic about the fact that maybe it's all happening in our brains <laughs> Yeah. So, so to what extent do you differentiate the mind from the brain? Oh, me personally? Yeah. Or, so, well, so is this just like a psychological thing or is there some kind of brain stimulation? Where do you draw the line here? Well, yeah, okay, this, it's a really tricky question. This, I mean, philosophers have been banding this one around for 2,000 years. So my personal belief is that there is no distinction between the mind and the brain. I'm a bit of a mechanist in that way, I'm afraid. Sorry. Sorry. No, no. But I, I don't... I just... The brain is complex enough for... to be able to, one way or another, explain everything that we experience. That Having said that, I don't think we have done that, 
but I'm, I'm saying that it is complex enough to do so but we haven't actually achieved that yet well, and we may never achieve it. Well, here's, here's a tangible, more tangible way of putting the question. If I take the brain physical approach to this question, I could say let's induce a, some stimulation in part of the brain or let's put a yeah. chemical in the brain and you'll get a, a, a sensation of euphoria or whatever. Or I could tell you some bad news or some sad or some happy news or something and then I induce a sensation through the mind. Now, that's a fairly, to me, that's a fairly... Two Why would they be pathways. two different things? Well, which causes which? But but I'd argue that there isn't a which causes which. That there is a, that they're logically linked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I mean I can I can understand a person's psychology and a person's behaviour by by getting the scalpel out and, and slicing open their brain or using some of those fancy machines of yours, which we'll talk about in a while. <laughs> no, I mean, actually, something I know about. <laughs> We, 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 don't mind, we don't mind speculating here. On, we, we, everything here is speculation. Too. And by the way, in case you, uh, you, you missed that, our guest today is Dr. Kristen Pammett, Senior Lecturer at the School of Psychology. My name is Rod. And our guest also on the show this morning is Nisa Skilton from the Canberra Times here on Fuzzy Logic. Where was I? <laughs> My... <laughs> I think we were challenging some basic philosophy. But... <laughs> um. Yeah, so the, you can have the psychoanalytic way of looking at the Freudian or the Jungian approach or whatever to, the, to, to explaining a person's behaviour, or we can have a brain-physical-centred approach. And I think you're saying that, well, you are saying they're not really different, are they? I wouldn't say that they have to be different. I think that we can, that it's like any sort of model of behaviour must, in one way or another, end up being married to what their brain does. They're not different things. I mean, our, our neurons fire and we behave. That's the research that I do. And uh, we'd, we're just using a different framework to explain human behaviour, but I don't think they have to be different. Okay, well, it has a very real difference in the way you treat people, though, doesn't it? Because if you're going for the brain-centred approach, you'll give them some sort of pharmaceutical treatment, yeah. and if you're going for the other approach, you'll go for some counselling, some analysis and so on. Yeah, now, again, I'm not a clinical psychologist. Oh, sorry, 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 <laughs> Kristen. But, uh, again, I think you're, anybody who is a, in, a psychoanalytic, takes a psychoanalytic approach to human behaviour would never dismiss the idea that it emanates from the brain, basically. And um, there are different approaches that are appropriate for different types of mental disorder or mental illness. Okay. Well, that's some pretty deep stuff. We didn't say we don't dive into the deep end here and stretch everybody's brain, including those of our guests. Two double X, this is the Fuzziologic Science Show. My name is Rod, and special guest with me this morning, Nisa Skilton, science writer from the Canberra Times, and Dr. Kristen Pammer, senior lecturer at the School of Psychology at the ANU. Now, I'm going to just quickly do a minor diversion here because today is World No Tobacco Day and they've got a poster here which is fairly confronting. I'll just hold up so I guess can see it. And if you look carefully to your radio, there it is. It's a very attractive-looking woman and she's got a one of those little microphones embedded in her throat so that she can speak because she has throat cancer. And uh, so there's all this bunch of activities going on with World Cancer Day, or World No Tobacco Day, sorry. And it says that women are at great risk from the tobacco industry because tobacco companies continue to spend heavily on alluring marketing campaigns that target women. 
women are gaining spending power and independence, so they've got more to spend on things like tobacco. And tobacco companies are investing heavily in the low-volume and middle-income countries where most female um, potential users live. So it's pretty scungy kind of stuff. Do you, uh, we're talking about stimulating parts of the brain before with the pleasure centres. There's some, definitely some uh, neurochemical things going on here with tobacco, like uh, nicotine stimulates parts of the brain, doesn't it? Sorry, I'm off your your topic again. <laughs> let, let, let's let's go back to to, you, to your home turf and uh, Nisa. <laughs> well, your home turf is something that is a really remarkable um, kind of phenomenon, I think, and that is synesthesia. But I'm going to get you to explain to us what synesthesia is because you'll do a much better job than I will. All right. Well, synesthesia is. Uh is the sensory events that occur when unusual sensory get, events get combined. So it's what an individual experiences when the brain, for one reason or another, combines um, sensory events like colour and sound or colour and letters or numbers um, or, in one case that I know of, pain and colour. Um, or, in some cases, you can have a tricineset where, for example, the middle C, uh, the sound of middle C also is purple and tastes like vanilla ice cream. Oh, wow. It doesn't sound like such a bad thing. I, I agree. I'm not synesthetic, but I think it'd be pretty cool. Can you imagine going to the uh, to the opera or somewhere like that and the, the visual experience that would go along with the auditory one? I think it'd be amazing. Oh, it would be. I remember speaking to a synesthet who was a musician and she, um, when she thought or when she saw um, letters, she would think of colours. Yep. So she said, my name, Nisa, was a kind of an orangey-brown name because yep. the N and the Y made her think of orange and yellow and brown. And so she said that when she played music, she'd play different chords on her guitar and she would come up with, or she'd just ima- be imagining all these different colours. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like a beautiful experience. But Absolutely. on the other hand, I read about a guy who said he couldn't stand the name Peter because it tasted like dirty nappies. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's right. So it's, it's very individual. So the synesthets that you meet, do they feel that they have something special? Or do they often complain about they it do. and think that they no, don't want it? No, in most cases they are. It's just, well, first of all, it's just a part of who we are. And uh, that lends itself to that whole idea if we don't, don't question each other about our, our world. I, don't, I, you know, I assume your sensation of red is much like my sensation of red. We make assumptions about what, how other people in the world view the world. So this is why a lot of synesets aren't aware there's anything unique about them until they hear a radio interview, for example, or they see somebody gives a lecture or a presentation of some sort. And in, when I do this, invariably at the end of, a, say, a public lecture of some sort, I will have 10 people come up at, and say, but I thought everybody did this. <laughs> I didn't realise it was unusual. So th- those those people who have an awareness that, yes, I do, I do something that's different to everybody else. I, I experience sort of differently to other people. My experience is it, is it is just such a fundamental part of who they are. They don't experience it as a negative thing. It's They don't even think about it. So if I'd asked um, one of my uh, synesthetic subjects, for example, what colour is my name? Like, as, yeah. as you did, for example. And I've had all sorts of different variants from, from blue through to golden through to sort of brown. So they they actually have to stop and concentrate and think about what it is because it's, it's just automatic. 
And it must be such a spectrum of how people experience synesthesia as well. How do you kind of um, split the people who may have associations between colours and names, for example, maybe they've they think of Frank with red colouring because they've seen an advert, for example. How do you um, kind of distinguish between those people and the people who do actually experience synesthesia? Well, uh, in fact, (laughs) there's a number of different distinctions. First of all, you're right, it is extremely difficult to do any research in this area because it is so different because people uh, demonstrate different qualities of synesthesia and it's so individual. Everybody's experience is different. There are ways in which we can identify what we consider to be genuine, for the want of a better word, synesthesia. And, and uh, for example, we have questionnaires that ask, them, that ask a subject to be uh, to explain the sort of experiences they have. It's got to have been consistent. They've got to have been experiencing it all their life, um, or for at least for a, a long period of time. It shouldn't have occurred as a result of some sort of brain trauma of some sort. We know that, though, it does... Well, we know... I've got anecdotal evidence. Almost everybody I speak to has said it changes somewhat around puberty. Now, for some, I know somebody who was a trisinocet who lost one part of it. I think he lost the taste component, but left, but was but remained with the um, the sound and um, colour component. And I know somebody else said it, it decreased dramatically around puberty. Whether or not that's something to do, we know that the brain does all sorts of weird and wacky stuff around puberty. So whether or not it's a brain thing or whether it's a social thing, we don't know. Does, does it occur in both directions? So if I associate no. a number with a colour, no, does it the colour induce the number? No, and this is one of the, uh, the difficulties in trying to work out what the hell is going on with synesthesia, is it only ever goes in one direction. And... Um, so there's been a lot of. I was just trying. To, what was the original question you asked me? You actually. <laughs> Maybe what is the decision? <laughs> Something else was to ask. Oh, how you distinguish to. between the That's two right. groups? <laughs> so there's also a difference in terms, not just in terms of the, the everybody has a different experience of it, but there's also some people. Ex- so take colour and sound, for example, colour tone synesthesia. Some people experience the the colour, if you like, out there on in the world, other people kind of experience it inside their head. And we've got evidence to suggest they might actually demonstrate different types of synesthesia because it looks like the one type of... one People who have it... I'm trying to remember which way it goes now. I think we found that people who experience the colour sort of out there do it in a... The combination occurs very, very fast, so almost pre-attentively, whereas the, the other people, there's more of a combination. There's, it's more... It appears to be later in processing. So it might actually have something to do with the attentional mechanisms. So can you... Is this reflected in your brain scanning techniques using functional MRI? No, I don't use functional MRI. I use something called magnetoencephalography. (laughs) If you can say that fast... (laughs) On a Sunday morning after a couple of drinks. Yeah, you're you're doing very well. took a fair bit of practice to get that one down pat. I can tell you now. So magnetoencephalography. Magnetoencephalography. So or magneto, med. as in magnet, encephalography, right. as in part of the brain. Reading the brain. Reading the brain. Yeah. And graphy, obviously, as in imaging yeah. of some sort. And what do you do? Do I put on a skull cap? Do I look like uh, someone out of a clockwork orange? No. In fact, it, it, it looks far less serious than EEG, which, which is its electric correlate. Uh, what did it do? do you remember... I don't know if 
my grandmother when she'd go to the hairdresser, they'd have you know the big hair dryer that would come down oh, over yeah. you know the, for the blue rinse. Well, it looks like a big version of that. So Meg is basically looks like it just a really big hair dryer that just comes down <laughs> over your head, and it doesn't actually touch your head. It's just it's the sensors just sit over your head and they measure the magnetic field patterns that are generated by your brain. So if I when I look at your face, Rob, for example parts of the, the brain that are responsible for face recognition are firing. Large populations of cells are firing at the same time. When they fire all at the same time, they generate, well, they generate a tiny electric current, in its, which is what EEG picks up. But they also, if you remember your physics, your right-hand thumb rule? Mm-hmm. Remember that one? Yeah. So if you get an electric current, you also get a magnetic field pattern that's, that's all fogged. Which related to our lightning bolt story earlier. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's all intertwined. It's sides. It's just, <laughs> it's just different aspects of the same thing. Anyway, so MEG measures... So if I'm looking at your face, large populations of neurons in the face recognition centres of the brain are firing. They're generating a tiny magnetic current, magnetic field, and that's what's being measured by the sensors in the MEG. Okay, so now my question, just to go back to my question then. Yep. Where you, so you've got a MEG sensor or device sitting on someone's head doing their hair yep. while they're at it. <laughs> and you said that some people experience synesthesia out there in their visual field. Yeah, and so... And other people appear... We haven't measured deeper. that. What we were actually looking at was... Um, in, with Meg and, the, and we've done one study looking at synesthesia and we had um, one synesthetic subject and he was a colour tone synesthet so he would for every auditory experience he had there would be a colour experience as well and um, uh, I had been tracking his colour experiences for quite a few years so it was, it was stable what we did was we measured what we were interested in well, does do the colour centres of the brain actually fire or is it something else that's going on and in what sort of sequence does it, does it occur and so basically what we did was we played uh, I would play him a tone for him that would also generate a colour, same tone for me nothing, it's a tone, there's <laughs> nothing else exciting about it but for him it generated a colour so we had uh, the conditions where there was a uh, just a tone by itself, conditions where there was a tone and the associated colour that was also flashed up as well, and then the same sort of conditions in people who weren't synesthetic. And we demonstrated that, yes, in fact, that at a very, very quickly, pretty well at the same time, when he heard the tone, he would also see the colour, even if it was just the tone. And that uh, visual, uh, the, and that uh, brain, those brain signals mirrored the brain signals that when when we actually presented the colour and he heard the tone. Wow. And uh, Which is pretty cool when you think about it because in my brain, I'm not synesthetic, the colour parts of the brain fire because light energy hits my eye, goes into the visual cortex and fires in the and the, the cells in the colour areas of parts of the brain fire. That's the way they fire. This guy had no or a visual experience at all and uh, sound from a completely different part of the brain was was um, sufficient to generate signals in a part of the brain that should be only um, activated by light experience. And, oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm so excited. This is really interesting. I just wanted to know, um, how accurate is the response of colour? So if did you measure him over time and see if the same tones yes. resulted in exactly the same yeah. colours over yeah. time? Yeah. 
Wow. And what time frame was that over? That was that's o- that's been over. Uh, well, the last time I did it was about five years. It was certainly over ten years. Okay. And all the responses are the same. Mm. <laughs> Can it ever be such an extreme experience that you could call it a disability, or is it just a richness? That's, that's a really interesting question. I don't have the answer to it, but I've often wondered that myself, particularly when um, I remember talking to a participant of mine, and she had... I was trying to th- I think she had colotone synesthesia and she was because we're also we, we know that it's partially genetic as well and um, her daughter also has it and she when she the subject herself the participant herself she didn't recognize she had synesthesia until she was quite older she was in her 30s or so and when she realized that she had this thing called synesthesia she started talking to her daughter and it turns out her daughter had quite um, a large number of experiences. She said, "Yeah, and this happens, and this happens, and I feel the uh, that sort of touching on my arm as well, and it tastes like this, and it sounds like this, and so she had very, very, and it, that's what made me start to think: at what point does it actually become dysfunctional? I, and I wonder because we know, for example, that there are um, some of the theories of things like autism, for example, are an inability to, or even schizophrenia. Some people have theorised that." Uh, an inability to filter sensory information may underlie some of the sorts of experiences that they have. Ah. And I started to think about that. Now, I'm not saying in any way, shape or form that there's a link with autism, schizophrenia or anything else, but it is that um, sensory experiences, the point at which sensory experiences become no longer functional but now dysfunctional, and I've, I've wondered that myself. I'm very glad you mentioned the autism because that actually was one of my questions, and when my workmates asked me, or I told him that you were coming on the show, he said he has an autistic son, and his son is very sensitive to certain inputs, and yes, you have to yeah. filter like loud noises are very yep. upsetting to yep. him. And it strikes me there's a little bit of a crossover here, perhaps. I wonder if there's any research in this area or not. No, not in terms of a link between synesthesia and, and autism, no. But I, it wouldn't surprise me if there's, there are similar mechanisms going on that are, are being manifest in different ways. Okay. Well, we, we're having such fun talking about synesthesia. We haven't even gone on to our other two topics, which is <laughs> dyslexia and attention. And uh, I think, uh, look, I'm going to play you this quick uh, promo that uh, Anissa was on air with me with uh, Dr. Charlie Lineweaver a little while ago. And so here's uh, the promo that Tom did for uh, Dr. Charlie Lineweaver. Hi, I'm Charlie Lineweaver, and you're listening to Community Radio 2XX. But how are we doing that? Our signal is speeding across the ether at the speed of light. Only there is no ether. And the sound is rattling round your ears, buzzing through your neurons. You're a vast assembly of protons, atoms, quarks. Quantum weirdness, that's what you are. The universe is a strange place. Stranger than you imagine, stranger than you can imagine. I'm Charlie Lineweaver, and I recommend you tune in to Fuzzy Logic on Sundays at 11.30 a.m. on 2XX. Yeah, that was Charlie Lineweaver. He was fantastic. And uh, you should have seen the look on his face because I gave him that script and uh, and I said, uh, the sound is travelling across the ether. And he went, eh, hang on, these guys, these guys reckon they're on a science show. And, uh, so that was quite fun to watch. Look, um, I think I might just... 
go into the subject of attention rather than dyslexia first up because uh, I'm not sure whether people listening to the program are aware of exactly what goes on in the studio while we're on the radio. In front of me, I've got enough buttons and sliders and dials and push things and computers and CD players and stuff like that to drive the SS Enterprise across the galaxy and back again. And at the same time, I'm dealing with uh, a, a subject and our, our two guests, and then we're talking to a microphone. There's a lot going on in, in our head at one time. And I just wanted to ask you, Kristen, what's, what, is it, what are you researching in attention? Because that's what I struggle with in doing a show like Fuzzy Logic. It's very demanding and Absolutely. it's a huge yeah. amount of fun, but it's also a very intense experience. Yeah. And can I get you to think back about what your first experience of it was like? Can oh. you do it more easily now than you could when you first did it in terms of juggling all these bits and pieces? Yes, I can. In fact, one of the very first shows I ever did was uh, I had this cute little line all ready and I splurted it out and then I did some story and I got halfway through it and realised I was blathering. I think one of the things I've, I have noticed is that uh, I operate the console now as if I'm driving a car. Yep. I'm yep. using the automatic part that's of right. my brain. Is that yeah. what you were getting yeah, towards? That's right, because it will be, the way that we manage these um, multiple sensory things, which is, which is what you're doing, is one or more of them become automatic in the end. And that's the way we ultimately manage it. It's why it's the way that we can hold a conversation and drive a car at the same time, for example. But hopefully the questioning part of my brain isn't automatic because I'll ask you those <laughs> dumb questions. So, so what's, the, what's the thrust of your research here? Okay, well, actually the research that we're doing is when we are engaging in complex environments like this, but in specifically because some of this research is being funded by the NRMA, specifically we're interested in when we're following complex environments... Experimentally, we just have things bouncing around a computer screen, but you could translate that into the driving situation. Under what circumstances do we miss additional stimuli? So if we're driving under what's... We've all had that near-miss experience where the, the um, motorcyclist comes out of the side or somebody steps onto the road and you just never saw them. It just, you know... And... Um, we, when we ha what, what we get our participants to do, we, in fact, we have one experiment where we are simulating a driving situation, but the more just re pure research-oriented one, we ha get uh, participants to uh, count the bounces of um, objects on a computer screen. So they bounce off the edge of the computer screen, they have to monitor which ones. An additional stimulus then comes across the centre of the screen, and we've had up to 90% of people miss that's that additional stimulus come across the centre of the screen. Some of you might have come across the gorilla experiment. <laughs> okay, so that's a very... That, a lot of people are, uh, are familiar with that now. So what happens is you've got... What they did was they got, um, I think it's five... T two teams with five people in it. One group wore a black shirt, one group wore, wore a white shirt, and they tossed balls, to e a ball, a basketball, to each other through, you know, the black and white teams. And what you have to do is watch and count how many times, say, the white team catches the ball. That's the task. Now, what happens is a, a man in a gorilla suit walks across the centre of the stage and then off again. And it's around about 65% of people don't notice the gorilla. 
Uh, is there any gender difference, do you think? Because uh, the so-called difference between... <laughs> <laughs> you yourself in deep water I, I don't think that particular research has been done. We tend not to break it down into gender. We've, we've not noticed that there's been a gender difference. It's called inattentional blindness. It's, oh. an in, it's, it's when you um, are engaged in doing something else and you fail to notice something that's going on. Well, when you think of the amount of information processing going on in a mm-hmm. brain at any given moment, it's, it's a very amazing task. And it's extraordinary. I, yeah. And one of my favourite anecdotes is out of Douglas Adams' uh, Hitchhiker's Guide, and there's a thing called the somebody else's problem field. Yes. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I do. So what happens is, right, there's this uh, soccer match, right, and there's 110,000 people on the soccer match. They're all excited watching their soccer game. And now the sky comes, this alien space, it goes, and lands right behind the goalposts. But nobody can see it. <laughs> Because it's protected by a somebody else's problem. Field. <laughs> I like that. I, I've forgotten all about that. I, mean, I think I'm going to have to put that into a paper somewhere. <laughs> but when you think about what we actually do every minute of the day, the amount of information that we deal with and the amount of information we filter out. And when you think about just standing in here, there's there's a sound of an air, sitting in here, there's an air conditioner, that the chair's a bit squeaky and, you know, my foot might hurt a little bit and, you know, I'm still feeling a bit sleepy and uh, I'm trying to talk to you and I'm listening to what else is going on. There's stuff going on on the other side of it. But we filter all that out. We have to filter all that out because to not do so would be pathological. So the question is, what do we filter out and what do we not filter out that allows to function, basically? Is this reflected? Have you done MEG-type analysis of this as well? <laughs> I, I have, but I haven't actually managed to completely analyse data yet. So we don't know what's going on. Do you think we're going to see less of this blizzard of road signs that are now appearing around our streets? Is that, is that kind of what the threat, why the NRMA like is interested here? Well, the inner, yeah, uh, one of the things... I, well, <laughs> I'll try and finish a sentence. Yes, there's a number of different things. I think that our, our driving worlds are too complex, and I think that's not a good thing for driving. But specifically what we're looking at is are things like does the environment itself dictate what we are more likely to see or not? So, f- for example, are we more likely to, s- to see a kangaroo about to jump across the road if we're down near the Cotter Dam, for example, versus when we're in the city? And what you're expecting to see? It could go either way. I think that we'll be more likely to see... Like, there have been a difference or we'll be more likely to see um, stimuli that are inconsistent with our environment. Well, probably a couple of things there, Nisa. Well, I think one is it's a noisy environment in the city and less noisy out on the country road, perhaps? Yes, that's true. In fact, actually, and that's one of the things we have to control for in doing the research because that that's a good explanation as to why we may or may not be more likely to detect events because it's quite often we've all had that experience of driving and have drifted off and suddenly realised, oh, hell, <laughs> what have I been doing for the last 10 minutes? And, oh, I'm here already. <laughs> that sort of experience. Oh, funny you should say that. I just realised I'm on the radio. <laughs> Is that what we're doing here? <laughs> uh, so how are you doing this? Have you got somebody in a simulator car? Are they sitting in front of a, a screen? Or no, something? we can't afford a simulator car, unfortunately. So what uh, we've had, we spent an awful lot of time trying to work out the best way to actually do this, given we didn't have simulation. So we, that was our first thought. We, and you can't have, put the hairdryer inside the and car. Head, no, it's never, that's never going to work. We can't put the car inside the hairdryer because it's, it's all the metal. and it, You can't have metal in there, a MEG system. 
because it's um, it'll distort the uh, the signal. Okay. So even somebody who has uh, a lot of metal fillings, we can't image oh. because the signal become, become distorted. So yeah, the car in the meg meg chamber is never going to work. <laughs> okay. But uh, um, let's talk about dyslexia now, just to do a, a, a ninety <laughs> degree. Whoops. And I've just dropped my chair onto my feet, so uh, uh, my attention has been diverted. And sort of everybody's attention ninety degrees. Let's talk about dyslexia. Uh, it's a fairly serious thing for a person who has it, is it not? What can you describe yes, it, it, please? Um, dyslexia is specific, specifically a disorder of. It's a language disorder. It's, it's unique to uh, a difficulty in reading. It's got nothing to do with IQ. So you must have a, a good or above average IQ in order to be classified as dyslexic. The reason I'm, I'm hesitating is there are a number of different ways of, of classifying dyslexia. And what I'm going to tell, tell you, first of all, is the, the way we do as scientists. So as a scientist, when I want to understand what the brain's doing, for example, in dyslexia or what our visual attention system is doing in dyslexia, I need to know that the person I'm dealing with has dyslexia and isn't reading poorly as a consequence of something else. So what that means is I need a, a child, for example, or an adult who has a... a a cognitive problem that's specific to reading. They have a average or above average IQ. They've had a normal teaching experience. They've had normal sort of home life, normal sort of upbringing, normal exposure to literacy. So there's no other explanation as to why they may have poor reading. The now that's important for me as a scientist, understanding what's going on behind dyslexia. What, of course, it doesn't obviate in any way, shape, or form that somebody who has um, Down syndrome, for, for example, could in fact have um, a biological dyslexia, a real dyslexia. So you're trying to control the variables in other exactly. words. Exactly, that's right. So it, it becomes difficult because, of course, children who come from very poor environments could have dyslexia. And I should uh, remind our listeners at this point who we actually, whose voice you're <laughs> hearing on the radio here. This is Dr. Kristen Pammer, Senior Lecturer at the School of Psychology at the ANU, with my friend Nisa Skilton from the Canberra Times. And my name is Rod. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on 2XX 98.3 FM. Now, dyslexia. Yes, the name dys as in uh, dysfunctional and lexia specifically as in reading or writing. Writing does it affect people in writing? Yeah, it does. Uh, we d we have done some research to say that that it's that dis dis failure to, to read and failure to spell may be two different things because you can get some children who can do one of the one or the other uh, and be, have a impairment in the other. In terms of the actual gr being able to physically write, that seems to be very common. But children who have dyslexia also have real problems in physically writing as well. Not severe problems, but it, it's it, it's not um, it, it falls below the normal curve in terms of fine motor development in that way. Um, in, in as much as it's common, yeah. So, what's going on when people actually experience dyslexia? How does it manifest when they're reading, for example? We don't actually know the answer to that. Uh, we know basically it's it's fundamentally difficulty in phonics so it's a language based disorder it's a difficulty in um, associating the sounds that we have in our head as children with what's effectively squiggle on a page when we're reading that's what reading is it's being able to synthesize a pattern an arbitrary pattern 
with a, a sound in our head that we already know. That's what okay. reading, learning to read actually is achieving. Children who have dyslexia we know have problems in, the phonolo- in phonological coding, so what, that the language part of that. Um, so that's things like um, when you ask... It, it, it's being able to manipulate the sounds of language independently of just the reading component of it. We know that is to be that is the case. We've known that for a long time. And there's an awful lot of research looking at phonological coding in reading, which, and it's also why it's so very, very important to teach children to read according to phonological, um, very clear phonological guidelines. The research that I do is actually taking a step back from that higher level cognitive phonological processing, is more the attention sort of stuff, and uh, what is actually going on in the visual experience of children who are reading. We don't know ex- what they actually experience. We, there is, people will often describe things like um, or think they understand dyslexia as being words moving over each other or the words shaking or shimmering or you know, um, rivers forming down the page or that the, the words are carved into the page or floating above the, ca- the page. That actually describes something quite different. People who experience that do have difficulties reading for a, but for a completely different um, reason. That's actually called, well, there's a number of different names for it, scotopic sensitivity syndrome, visual discomfort, uh, but it's not actually dyslexia. And uh, having said that, these people, the, the difficulty with something like scotopic sensitivity syndrome, which is a very, very visual disorder, is that children who have it will physically avoid reading because it, it's really uncomfortable to do so. So if they're avoiding reading, they're not reading, they're not getting the experience it results in an um, impairment. But there's no higher level... There appears to be, as far as our research shows, no higher level cognitive impairment in terms of things like phonological coding. And if you give the children the right visual conditions, that makes it much, much easier for them to read. So dyslexia is something quite different from what people most most generally believe dyslexia to be, in as much as it, it isn't the, the, the people reading words backwards or moving up and down the page or whatever. Well, Kristen, one of the other things I do on radio is uh, for a, another volunteer station, which is the Print Handicap Radio, mm-hmm. and on there we read articles to people who can't read it themselves. Yep. And one thing i found is I'm really bad at it. Uh, I have trouble, even today, just reading bits you know, of text. I'll get partway through and I'll lose the thread. Now, I haven't been able to decide whether I have very mildly dyslexic or whether it's because my attention isn't well focused or because... Or I'd like what? to guess it was the latter, would be my guess. Do you, I mean, my first question would be, would you, if you were just at home, in bed, reading, and you decide to just read it out loud, would you have the same experience? Possibly. Um, how would I know? Is, is that a test, just reading no, it out? Well, the only thing that I was wondering is that, is that there's a lot, lot going on at the moment, so when you're reading out loud, you're also um, dealing with the fact that you're dealing with the radio station as well. So you and take that out, that complexity out of the story, in other words. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that would be my guess. Is that it, it's well, I'm wondering for people who are listening who may have some element of dyslexia, and I presume there's a whole range of severity from very, very mild mm-hmm. up to severe, how would a person know that they might be subject to, to some of this? Oh, I've asked you a hard question, I can tell. <laughs> Sorry. It, it is a tricky one, uh, in, in as much as... Because reading... Our brains haven't, have not evolved to read. Unlike language, so we do have a part of our brain that is there for language. I'll come back to your question if I don't remind me, because I'll, otherwise I'll drift off. <laughs> so our brain hasn't evolved to read. There, our brain... There is a part of our brain that 
has developed language capacity, the, infer- the uh, broker's area, which we know about, and that is there to process language. There isn't the same thing in reading. We learn to read. Learning to read is like learning any other skill, like learning to ride a bike, learning to play the piano, learning to play golf. And what the brain has to do to do that is generate a network where a whole stack of other parts of the brain that are specialised for doing other things, like language, like visual processing, like pattern recognition, um, all those sorts of things, need to be talking to each other. So learning to read means learning to to develop uh, a network where all those bits of the brain are talking to each other. The brain hasn't evolved to do that. We're very good at learning, so uh, we can learn to do that reasonably easily, but we haven't learned to read per se. I told you I'd forget what the original question was. Yeah, and by the way, while you're talking there, listeners... um, the, the light came on to the studio next to us. I noticed Kristen's eyes flickered to the left slightly, but she managed to filter that piece of noise and you went on <laughs> in, anyway. Yeah, yeah. And, and also a little anecdote here. A funny thing that happened on the way to the studio this morning, and this is about <laughs> attention, because I'm thinking about the program, and I've just met Kristen for the first time, and she happened to be wandering on the footpath outside, and uh, we got out on the wrong floor. And there you go. There's a classic attention uh, or failure of attention because... Mm-hmm. And I got out the second floor instead of the third floor and I'm going, where's the studio? What's happened to the studio? And you could you saw the look of... And it's very yeah. embarrassing. And I should tell everybody <laughs> in the world this is what I've just done. But there, that's an example. Don't we all do those sorts of things. How many times we walk into the kitchen, for example, and then stop and think, what was I what, doing what was here? That? Again? Why, why am I here? What, what, what's, what have I? Or got? even things like putting the milk into yeah, the cupboard with the it. plates. Yeah. <laughs> Some people believe that? that that sort of thing happens because um, we generate sort of templates of behaviour. So, for example, we have a specific template of ah. making a cup of coffee, getting up in the morning, making a cup of coffee, and uh, that's one template. And another template, which is making some toast, and the bit, the broader template being this is my breakfast template. You know. Uh, schemas is what some people refer to them as. So that we have these very specific schemas, our getting up and going to work schema, our making breakfast schema, and so on and so forth. And what happens sometimes, one schema gets captured by the other. So if we're in the middle of doing our making, <laughs> making our toast schema and it gets captured by our making our coffee schema and we suddenly find ourselves putting the toaster in the fridge. <laughs> so they the clash. <laughs> so it's a little pattern of behaviour. I think yeah. it's like, no, I, I asked that nasty question earlier about cigarette smoking nicotine, but yeah. that comes to mind here because uh, one of the tricks to giving up smoking is if you go outside, I always have a cup of coffee and a cigarette and I walk out the back door and those things are associated. Right. So is that an yeah. example of that? Um, yeah, very much so. I mean, yeah. s- schemes are, are basically learnt behaviours. Wow. So, yeah. So I haven't forgotten the question, by the way. Which I remembered while you were talking, actually, but now I've forgotten. <laughs> what was it? <laughs> how, to, how could people recognise? And there, there's different elements. Of, yeah. Okay, so w- the real reason I was talking about the brain and learning to read because it's a learnt behaviour, uh, we do have sort of almost a normal curve in regards to ability in reading, just like we do in, say, playing the piano. Now, I had p- piano lessons for two years. I can't play the piano to save my life. But it doesn't matter because my ability to get on, the wor- on in the world doesn't, isn't impaired by in- my inability to play the piano. Reading is much the same thing. There are people who are um, are very good at reading. Most people are pretty good at it. There are some people who are extraordinarily good and will be at a very young age. There are some people not so good at it who fall down the other end of that normal curve, if you like. And then there are some people who have specific impairment. So it's difficult to, to, to 
get a sense sometimes whether or not it's just a skill that you're, you're not all that great at or if it's a, a specific impairment in some way. So whether or not it is, in fact, the network hasn't, hasn't really um, consolidated, if you like, or if there's a part of the network that's actually impaired in some way. Uh, so in terms of identifying, it's one of those things that if you, if it's, I mean, there's a lot of sites out there, in fact, that are, that are quite good at, um, you know, checklisty type things. But we do know that it's a phonological problem. So if, it, if, if you've always had a problem in language processing, understanding language, dealing with things like spoonerisms, dealing with b- being able to um, hear rhyme, for example, if you have difficulty with that sort of thing, um, if you have problems in, if you find it difficult to get numbers down or translate numbers, for example, and getting them up, getting them in the wrong order, so things unrelated to reading, if you like. Um, one of the things that we <laughs> that is very common is uh, difficulty in left and right, but as well is um, it also go, tends to go hand in hand with dyslexia. Uh, if you if you have enduring spelling problems as well, as an adult then you could have a reading problem. Now, a lot of adults develop or become compensated. So what that means is this is an adult who, as a child, had a reading problem but developed a strategy in some way that allowed them to learn specific reading skills. And they beca- I mean, I know one woman who, t- who spoke to me once, she had a PhD and an MD, so she was a doctor in, on both camps, if you like, but had dyslexia. I said, how do you cope? How did? She said, well, I just got very, very good at first of all, relying on people and, and now I have a very good secretary. <laughs> so people develop their own behavioural strategies. What's happening in the brain, we don't know. I've been trying to get money to do that research and nobody seems to want to give it to me. Yeah. But we don't know, for example, whether or not people who become compensated develop alternate strategies, so different brain mechanisms that allows them to do it, or whether or not the the network that we that we all use becomes consolidated in some way. We don't know what's actually going on, how some people... My guess is that it's it's probably a bit idiosyncratic. My guess is people become compensated according to different strategies. But it's important to know because it helps us understand with children who have reading problems, do we persevere with normal reading um, uh, teaching practices or do we actually try and use alternate reading practices that may be better for that particular individual child? Well, la- last question, because we're now out of time, is uh, <laughs> uh, do colour-filtered reading glasses help here? I've heard that this yeah, is... They is help a... if you have visual discomfort, which is what I described earlier. We don't know why. We think it's got something to do with a hypersensitivity in the visual system. So if you do have a reading problem that it manifests in... A difficulty where the words move and shake and shimmer and um, look like they're carved in the page and so on and so forth. Uh, then coloured glasses or uh, coloured paper, coloured text, coloured um, even so just coloured cellophane overlays can be helpful um, for some people. The sort of things that people have said to me is the words sit down on the page, but for other children who don't experience those very visual ex- have have those very visual experiences who do have dyslexia. It doesn't seem to make the slightest bit of difference. Well, I hope you've all been paying attention. You're not feeling small because uh, the, the, the content of our show was too difficult. But, but those metaphors, I, I think they are an extension of, yeah, of synesthesia. Yeah. And, that was and quite it's one of the, it, yeah, and it's one of the reasons why the research into synesthesia 
diet for a long time. It was always believed to be just good memory or an extension of the whole metaphor thing and not anything unique about the human brain. And it's only just resurfaced in the last 15 years or so. Well, well, (laughs) I have to rest my brain now because I haven't... (laughs) You have all been paying attention to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. Our guest today was Dr. Kristen Pammers, Senior Lecturer of the School of Psychology at the ANU. Thank you very much for coming. A fascinating conversation, Kristen. Thank you very much for having me. And Nisa, great to have you on the show again. Oh, thank you, as always. Nisa Skilton from the Canberra Times. My name is Rod. Stay tuned to Fuzzy Logic uh, for next week because Tom has a special surprise guest. We're not quite sure we've got them yet, but it will be something special, I promise you. Your Science on a Sunday. Catch you then. This is The Joker.